Father who is our endless joy, Son who freed us from sin and misery, and Spirit who safeguards us for all eternity, blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. You make us lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our head and our cup overflows. It may be we were sent out with no money bag or knapsack, but did we lack anything? Nothing, Lord. You have richly provided us with everything to enjoy and have brought plentiful plenty into our hands. Many a time we have eaten and been filled and have delighted ourselves in your great goodness. When we remember all the ways the Lord our God has led us for so many years in the wilderness of this life, we must here set up a stone and call it Ebenezer, for till now the Lord has helped us. Cause us to remember your great love and faithfulness to us this morning. Grant to see all the waterless, broken cisterns we look to for the feeding and the nourishing of our soul, and give repentance that we might again delight in your nearness to us. And God's people said, Amen. It's been quite a while since I've had the pleasure of preaching from the book of Philippians. In fact, I looked the last time there was a sermon out of Philippians was August of last year. And so I don't in any way, shape, or form uh, expect you to remember where we are and what we were doing. And so I thought it might be helpful for us just to spend a few moments uh, getting reacquainted with ourselves, uh, with this book. Uh, There are two main themes that echo from beginning to end of Philippians. The first is love, and the second is joy. And uh, as as I went back through Philippians trying to catch us up, I thought... It's helpful if we look at the book in in three big sections. Now, lots of people can break it down into smaller pieces, but three big sections where we see love and joy come through. Uh, The first is Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 26. Uh, This is Paul's shared fellowship with the church in Philippi. Uh, He's expressing his care for them, uh, this church that he founded. If you go back to the book of Acts, you'd find uh, Paul founds this church with Barnabas as they come across uh, Lydia, who's dying by, or washing clothes by the river. And uh, he is expressing his care for them uh, because they love him deeply. In fact, uh, verse 7 uh, is an explicit declaration of his love for them. And then in verse 16 of that section, he makes it very clear that there is this expectation that both he and the Philippian church will love the preaching of the word of God. In verses 3 through 5, Paul tells us of his joy that he has in them. And then in verses 18 and 19, the joy of praying and preaching Christ. We move to the second section then. That's Philippians 1, 27 through the end of chapter 3. And this is usually the, the, what people would call the positive instruction or the, the major doings that the church is to, to take up, the, the commands that Paul has for them. He tells them to love one another because that's an imitation of Christ and a living out of Christ's love for them. That's chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He commends them for their joy that they have in fellowship with one another. That's chapter 2, verse 29. And the fellowship they have with God. Chapter 3, verse 1. And now we turn to the final section, the last portion of Philippians, and that's really the entirety of chapter 4. These are Paul's final encouragements. This is the Spirit's final words through Paul to a very faithful 
yet very weak and weary local congregation. How does Paul want to stir the church up who has suffered so much physically? They've seen Paul kicked out of the city. They've been imprisoned. They've they've had to defend the gospel over and over again. What does he want to say to them who are worn down spiritually? They've been false teachers among them. The world has creeped in. Selfishness has taken root. And there's even some apostasy. Maybe more relevant to us this morning is, what do we need to hear? So that tomorrow morning when you get out of bed one more time, weak and weary, sick and sore, and you want to seek to be faithful, what is it from this book that we can get to help us face the pressures that are coming from us from without the church? The conflicts we have within her? and the failed expectations that dwell deep inside every one of our hearts. And brothers and sisters, these struggles are not new to us. They're as old as time. And I pray this morning that we will see somehow, how impossible it may seem, that our hearts can be kept, and not just kept meagerly, but fervently for the Lord, as we are constantly assailed in our souls. We're going to see these themes of love and joy come out in the passage this morning. And there's, there's a key phrase that, that I think is very helpful that breaks down this section for us. The phrase is, in the Lord. So the three points of the sermon you're going to see is, first, stand firm in the Lord. That's chapter 4, verse 1 there. Stand firm in the Lord. The second point is verse 2 and 3. Agree in the Lord. So point one, stand firm in the Lord. Second is agree in the Lord. Point three then is rejoice in the Lord. That's verses four through seven. Stand firm, agree, rejoice. Chapter four, verse one reads, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now the, the phrase starts with therefore, so we probably need a little bit of context. Um, I don't expect anyone to have listened to my last sermon uh, on this particular text uh, recently, but if you go back, starting in verse 17 of chapter 3, this is what the Holy Scriptures say. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself." You see, Paul warns in that last part of chapter 3, he warns the church that the greatest threat to us that's outside of the four walls of the congregation is the appeal of the world to our hearts to find our satisfaction in where we live now instead of who we will be with forever. That's clearly in the text. That, That there are those who have earthly minds instead of waiting for a Savior. You see, there are those who take the name of Christ and they, and they start this long, slow, plodding through life after Jesus. That's verse 17. There's this walking after Christ. This example that Paul is putting forward. But slowly, over time, some of them will start to walk 
away. It's not a fast run. No, it's a slow abandonment. That's verse 18. They slowly walk now away from Christ to the point where they be called enemies of the cross. You see, the great threat to our our souls that comes from outside the four corners of the church is this, is the desire to have heaven, the text says is the transforming of our lowly bodies to be like Christ, to have heaven now. Not the waiting on the Lord to draw near to us, to, to cause our hearts to be in subjection to himself forever in his own good and wise and loving timing. No, we want heaven now. We want the things that we desire now. And what we have not considered, what, what I think Paul wants the Philippian church to consider is this. The most important thing that can be said about us in this life as we're plodding along or the next is what we treat as ultimate. What is most precious to us? What do we supremely love? And this actually will determine our comfort in this world and for all eternity. What do I mean by love? I don't mean uh, how I feel about something. So much of the world says what is true is based on how I feel. Nor is it um, the sentimentality that I get when I think about someone or something. Many a person, brothers and sisters and friends, many a person has great thoughts about God and feels really good about their relationship with him, yet have no real love for the Savior. I take love in its most general sense, maybe the the most generic definition we can give from all the scriptures, I take love to be gladly giving ourselves to serve and to abide with someone or something. The gladly giving of ourselves to serve and to abide with someone or something. Today's Mother's Day. Most people you know and I know will judge how good a person you are today on how you treat your mother. Did you take her out to a nice brunch? Did you buy her flowers? Did you remember to call? I'm reminding you to call your mothers if you don't remember that. Do these things. You're a good person. You're right with the world. Everything should be sunshine and rainbows but this is the snare here's the snare mothers are one of the very good gifts of life now there's the reality that some of us have very good relationship with our mothers others even myself not so much but either way the lord has given us mothers to love and to cherish and to honor so it's good for us to be thankful that there's a mother's day we can do that without being curmudgeon But mothers are not to be ultimate. Motherhood, as good as a gift it is, is not ultimate. We are to look to our mothers, ultimately, for approval or expect them to provide every love and comfort for us. We shouldn't even demand that as they get older, they free us from having to care for them so that we can live uh, carefree, worry-free lives. Nor, as Shane even prayed earlier, is motherhood ultimate. If you are a mother or desire to be a mother, that desire itself is not, is not ultimate. In fact, our honoring and loving our mothers or serving well as a mother is simply a reflection of our honoring and serving the Lord. The Lord is ultimate. But brothers and sisters, here's the problem. Aware of it or not, We have allowed the empty promises of the world, the flesh, and the devil to have a really great hold on what we give ourselves to and what we delight spending time in. 
In fact, we read Psalm 37 this morning. You can go back later and read it again. What happens to the man who has everything in this life? He withers and fails. He perishes. And he is empty. He's left alone. You see, um, we are those who tend to want to go after what our eyes see. And to fill our hearts with all the things that are under the sun. When what we were made for is to make the sun himself ultimate. Now, we could go on and on about idolatry. Um, I've done that before. Many of us have done that before as we preach. But I want to pick out a very specific thing. Why would Paul have to say, stand firm? Isn't that completely obvious? Well, I don't think so, because I know when I tend to think of, like, earthly-mindedness, that tendency my heart has to to go after created things and make them ultimate, uh, I tend to think, in my sober-mindedness, sitting in my my couch on a Sunday afternoon. You know what? Earthly mindedness will be so clear to me when it comes at me. The temptation to go after the things of the world will be so straightforward, so easy to see um, that the resisting temptation is going to be, that that temptation to walk away from Christ is going to be so plain that it's going to be really just avoiding the wrong people, doing the wrong things on the wrong part of town. But in reality... The evil of a love of the world tends to start very slow and hidden. It's almost imperceptible to our eyes. And and for many of us, it only shows itself once it's grown really sour fruit. This temptation to go after the things of the world, this temptation doesn't come to us just in illicit neon signs or in every advertisement and commercial We're told, the world tells us, buy this gadget or that gadget. It'll make your life easier. Get a timeshare. Increase your recreational time. Um, Allow yourself to disconnect from the the harsh realities of work. All of that. The world is shouting everywhere that what we can do is fulfill our desires out there. And the noise is so loud to the point you'd think it's deafening. But instead, like living next to a freeway where you hear noise all day long, it's become white noise background noise to the point that it's almost imperceptible to our soul that we don't see how much we're influenced by the world instead of by the word of God so much of the culture and its preaching has seeped into our souls we're so often ruled by our feelings how we feel do what feels good we assume that whatever comes to our mind must be true and definitional of who we are. We treat those things. Um, uh, we treat those things that we assume will make our life pain-free, care-free, trouble-free, worry-free, full of joy, as more real and as more ultimate than the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing about it: it's largely good things we're being tempted with. It's largely good gifts that this world encourages us to idolatrize. Listen, even something as reflective of the gospel as marriage becomes a selfish idol. When you ask for marriage advice, what do people tell you? Marry the person who makes you happy. That's not about the other person. That's about you. And yet that's the water that we've drunk from the culture. In other words, the world wants to convince you to give yourself to serve yourself. 
And just so, just so your conscience isn't wounded, just so that you, that you don't think of yourself as a self-centered, arrogant person, how about this? Dress it up as a hobby. Call it a relationship. Make it a job. Listen, sisters, let's not, be, let's not be ignorant like the world. Adam, without our sin nature in the garden, failed when he faced one temptation. All of creation shouted at him the goodness of God. He had one temptation and he failed. How do we ever expect to walk righteously when all of the world is against us? Shouting at us a million messages trying to pull us apart. You see, the Scriptures clearly declare that our enemy is not being bored or lonely or sickly or uneducated or unproductive. No, our great struggle is against sin and unbelief. What's the solution? What's Paul suggesting here? How do we turn from and stay away from self-worship? Well, the answer, he says, is to stand firm in the Lord. To stand firm in the Lord. The, the context of the preceding text, all that I read already, says that standing firm is the opposite of having our hearts set on things under the sun. Instead, we're called to look beyond the sun to the Son of God, waiting on the Lord to satisfy us, making Him the great aim of our life. Another way that Paul has said this already in Philippians, Philippians 1, 27, this is what he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The the standing firm, brothers and sisters, in the Lord is, is us working out faith together in the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, the Apostle John says. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Wow, what a weak weapon that seems to be, isn't it? Faith. And yet that's exactly what we're called to. Given, given all that we've gone through in First Peter, I, I, I've, I've, I've benefited so much seeing how tangible faith is. The exact things that we're called to believe and to do and to trust. Here's, here's what I want to do. I want to point us to exactly what the Apostle Paul is asking us to believe. What are we supposed to stand firm in, in Christ? Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. We're called to believe And encourage one another with the truth that Christ alone can provide our every need. That Christ alone can satisfy our hearts. That Christ alone can give us rest. It's to believe that what He gives us, or whatever He chooses not to allow us to have in this world, is for our good. And preparing us to delight in Him forever. You see, we're not to look at the world and be envious, but to wait on the Lord for His better portion, a better portion that the world is oblivious to. It can't know. It can't understand. Psalm 37, 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. 
Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. Why? Because ultimately he'll come to ruin. And all that he's put his hope and trust in will fail. We are called to encourage one another that believing God's ways, even denying us the things that we so desperately desire in this world, believing God's ways are better. And that living in light of this is actually going to be healing to our flesh and refreshment to our bones. How many of you need this morning healing in your flesh and refreshment in your bones? I know I do. And how's that going to come? Well, in short, it comes when we love God and delight in Him. Nehemiah 8.6, one of my favorite passages in all the Old Testament. They just rebuilt the temple. Some people are weeping because it's not as glorious as it used to be. Some people are shouting with joy because God has visited his people. And what does Nehemiah say? Rejoice in the Lord because this is your strength. Nehemiah 8.6. Now some of you, maybe most of us, myself included, tempted to look into our heart and say, but I've been so weak for so long. I've struggled with sin for so long. What about all these loves, these things I've clinged to other than Christ that I've tried to free myself from so that I could love Him alone? Brothers and sisters, in the Lord means that the Lord must do it for us. And we're going to see in the last point how He does it. But but here's, here's this. Can we take example from the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely we can. For when He was put in the wilderness, He was led there by the Spirit. He was trusting in that spirit. He was dependent on him. And you know what he was tempted to? All the things of the world. All the things of the world. Go back through Jesus' temptation. Here's what you'll find. He was tempted to live like a king. Kings aren't hungry. Make food for yourself. He was tempted to earn a people for himself. That's the whole reason why he came, wasn't it? To save us? Well, Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world. He was was tempted to prove the love of the Father. Throw yourself down. And he turned from every single one of those temptations to trust in his Father. Now, that's Jesus. Some of us will say, yeah, but he's also God. He was was tempted in his humanity, brothers and sisters. But yes, I I understand. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. What about the Apostle Paul? What about the Apostle Paul? You know, Paul uses a lot of words in verse 1 to really praise the church, doesn't he? To express his love for the congregation. And he doesn't do that for no reason. He doesn't tell them that he loves them, that he longs for them, that they're his joy and his crown, his very beloved, so that they can feel good about themselves. Do you know why he says that? Well, for this reason. What did Paul love before he came to Christ? Himself. Go back and read Philippians 3, 4 through 6. All those things that Paul could have boasted of, he was boasting before he came to Christ. And you know what he hated? The very thing that Christ loves, his church. He sought after them, persecuted them, imprisoned them, slaughtered them. Why? To add to his name. He thought it would make him big, special, important among the Jews. But what's happened now? What happens when he comes encountered when he has an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, the very murderer of the saints has become the most fervent lover of Christ's bride. The Lord, brothers and sisters, still frees souls to give themselves to service and delight in God today. 
He will do that as we turn to Him in faith in Christ, as we ask Him to strengthen us in the Lord Jesus. Now, there's one way that this can go wrong, and this is going to be kind of our transition into our second point. Some people have said, yes, I agree, the world out there, that's, that's the greatest enemy. That is the great enemy. And, and, and you know how I'm going, to, I'm going to run away from that? You know how I'm going, to, I'm going to overcome that? Is I'm going to run to the church. Now, what they don't mean, whether they'd say this or not, is, is I'm running to the church to, to point me to Christ, to build me up, to encourage me. No, no, no. They treat the church like a bunker where they can hunker down and keep the world out. And brothers and sisters, that's never going to work. Do you know why? Well, let's turn to point number two, to agree in the Lord. I entreat Euodiah and I entreat Sinachi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. See, here we find there are specific members of the Christian church in Philippi named. Eudiah and Sinachi have a disagreement between them that's, that's gotten to the point where people even outside the church know it. Paul has heard about it. This relationship between two women in the church, the place where you might think you could hunker down, the relationship between these two women has turned sour, and now Paul is encouraging a man... Synzygous, that's what true companion is. If you have an ESV study Bible, you might even see a, a, uh, a note there. True companion is actually the translation of a name, Synzygous. Clement and others in the congregation to work together with these women to agree in the Lord. You see, the problem is, brothers and sisters, you can try to keep the world out, but if you lock yourself in with sinners, you're going to have the same problem. Members of a congregation can recognize clearly that looking outside the world to satisfy our hearts with the things of the world is sin and unfaithful. Only then to turn around and load all the expectations they had for the world on one another. On one another. In fact, I think that's exactly what Paul is getting at. There seems to be a play on words. That, that name, Synzygus, or true companion, with the women who have worked so hard for the gospel who are true believers, it says that their name is in the book of life. These are true believers, but they don't act like true companions one to another, do they? They're divided over things that aren't essential. No, they've, they've, they've formed a rift between them over things that are preferences. They've they put expectations on one another that the Lord has not called them to do. And they've looked to be satisfied in each other when only the Lord could do that. They expect things from one another that only the Lord can provide. And guess what? Neither of them can live up to that burden. Neither of them can live up to that burden. Do we have that going on today? Is that a reality even in our own congregation? Yes. Yes. Examples. We can move our desire for friendship and companionship off those who are out there you know, off, off those who we meet with on the water cooler, around the water cooler at work, and we can put it on one another and demand that y'all be my best friends and y'all hang out with me. You don't, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. But, but that's a temptation. How often have you or I prioritized our plans for others' lives over desire for them to honor God? Think about it. Uh, you can have, I can have, um, a standard of behavior for everyone else's children that I hold you to. Or a specific way that I want you to talk to me. I don't like it when you say things a certain way. 
or even, or even want some of you to stay far away from me because you're hard to live with and you make my life difficult. None of that's faithful. One can start to judge how connected we feel to one another based on the presence or absence of common interests, political views, or even less essential doctrines. I can start judging your faithfulness to me based on how much time you're willing to spend with me or how often you text or call me. All the while, you can start evaluating my love for you based on how many meals I send to you when you're in the hospital or having children. And that's a lot of meals. A lot of meals. Or we can redefine discipleship. This is so common, brothers and sisters, in churches, and we've, we've drank in this. We can redefine discipleship in such a way that we evaluate faithfulness towards one another in this church as whether or not we're helping each other grow. Whether or not there's Bible studies. Whether or not pastors are, are going to spend time outside preaching the word with me week after week after week. All to address my sins and hang-ups. None of these things are evil. None of what I said is evil. And yet, these are not the things that God has given to draw us together, to keep us together, or even to define how we love one another. But they can be things that the hook of sin baits with the line of anger and division in our congregation. So what's the solution? What does Paul say? The solution to putting our hopes and our needs and our expectations on one another is doctrine. Does that shock you? This agreement in the Lord is doctrine? The common mantra today is doctrine divides, Christ unites. Many churches encourage people not to press deep into the things of the Lord, into into the deep truths of Christianity. (coughs) We're told that the more clear, the more specific you are on those things, the more likely you are to blow up the church that you're in. But even even that statement, doctrine divides, Christ unites, is self-defeating. Which Christ? Who? Anything we say about the Lord Jesus Christ is inherently doctrinal. It is specific truths about him that we're required to believe. And we can only be united in a specific Christ who did specific things for us and made us into a specific covenant people. And throughout the letter, here's the thing is, throughout the letter we find truths about Christ and what he's done that are things that we are to be in agreement with one another. <clears throat> Examples. I won't exhaust them all, but here's a couple just from the first chapter or two. How about the doctrine of the church? Chapter 1, verse 1. Do you know he, he addresses the letters to the saints and the elders and deacons? Do you know that? What callings do each of us have in relationship to one another? Christ makes some of us members who are called to use our gifts for the good of one another. Others of us, <coughs> excuse me, Christ makes in the deacons who are responsible for organizing those gifts to be used for the good of the church. And finally, Christ makes elders who are to shepherd the church through prayer and preaching. If we understand the specifics of those things, we understand what the church is, how it's organized, who's part of it, and we agree on those things, then we'll know exactly what to expect from each other in our vocations. And nothing more. <coughs> how about the doctrine of prayer? Chapter 1, 1 through 5, and then 8 through 11. The, the church's very language, which we're going to see in the last point, the church's very language is prayer. 
If we hold this common tongue, we know what kind of time and service we're to give one another, specifically to pray for one another. The doctrine of sanctification. Chapter 1, verse 6. It's the Lord who renews our hearts and makes us into his image. A doctrine, a shared doctrine of sanctification, means I free you from coddling me in my sin and from freeing me from my sins. No longer do you have to agree with my sin, nor do you have to change me. The Holy Spirit will do that. How about unity? Unity in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 7, or chapter 2, verse 27. If Christ is over his church, he then calls and institutes it. When we must agree, we did not put each other here together as a body. If we did, you would kick me out. I'm not very loving, not very lovable. But instead, each one of us, the Lord has placed into covenant relationships with one another, and you and I cannot forsake one another until the Christ removes one of us. Doctrine of the sojourner, chapter 2, verse 29 through 30. If we're not living for the kingdom of this world, but for the kingdom yet to come, we don't expect each other to make life comfortable or easy, but to encourage one another to hope in things to come. These and many other doctrines make clear we love one another by obeying God's law towards one another and we rejoice in one another as we encourage each other to hold these things as central. And to make that really clear, Paul gives us an example. What, what does he call the whole church to do for these women? Since Zygus is to show these women how to be true companions by working with Clement and with others to point these women towards Christ and to his teachings. That's what they're to do. They're to heal the wound by showing them exactly what it is to be true companions. The whole local church shares the burden of affirming each other in the faith by helping one another have the right relations and expectations to the Lord and one another. Brothers and sisters, here's the truth. If Christ and his word does not unite us, we can only expect to scandalize one another just like these sisters were doing. And this is hard. It's very hard. Because neither of us are lovely. Both of us are sinners. And it's a really simple thing to say that, hey, stop looking to the world. Don't load up all your expectations on the congregation. Just wait on the Lord. It seems really contrite. Very trite. Very cliche. But praise the Lord, he doesn't leave us with just that. Point number three, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgivings, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Just like the other two sections, there's a common command to do something in the Lord. In this case, we are to rejoice. But this isn't new to the book of Philippians or even the New Testament. It's always been part and parcel of faith in Christ. In fact, Proverbs 3, 14 through 18. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 3 through 4 and verse 7. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She's more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. 
Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Now, if you were in Sunday school for the last couple months, you'd know wisdom here is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to have Jesus Christ is to be blessed, full of joy. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil evil devices. Why? Because the implication is if we wait on him, if our hope and desire is in him, they will pass away, but our joy will last forever. You see, God makes it clear the only way we can rightly agree in the Lord with one another, the only way we can be strong in the Lord against the deceitful pleasures of the world is to learn to delight in him. In fact, Paul says it twice. Notice, uh, in all the other times, he gives the command, in the Lord wants. But here he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Why? Because he makes it clear that joy alone can handle both issues. The, the lack of reasonableness, the text says in the ESV, it's also gentleness. That's the problem between the sisters in the church. That lack of reasonableness or gentleness towards one another comes from trying to find our joy in people and not the person of Christ. Our anxieties about this world to come, that's what the anxieties here are in this last section, the anxieties of the things of the world here before us, come about because our squeezing the world for joy instead of striving after wisdom personified in Christ. So what's the solution? What then can we do to be freed from the world and from others as terrible slave masters over our souls? Brothers and sisters, you and I are good gifts to one another, but you are a terrible master, and I am a terrible master if, if you're ultimately living for me. How can we be freed from the misery The misery of trying to live with putting all of our joy in the world and one another. The misery that we might rightly instead rejoice in God's good gifts faithfully and serve one another lovingly to his glory. How does this happen? First, we must remember that the Lord is at hand. So the text says, the Lord is at hand. Sandwiched between both of those problems, the Lord is at hand. Psalm 14, it's also Psalm 52. The psalmist copies himself. But verse 1 through 3, this is what it says. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven at the children of man to see if any who understand, who seek after God, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, you and I, when we read that, there is no God. We, we tend to think of modern atheism. This idea that there's people stomping around in biblical times saying, there is no God. There were not atheists, brothers and sisters. Or if there were, we don't know of any. Not the way that we do today. No, instead, this is practical atheism. Where someone acknowledges God with their lips, but their heart is far from him. They, they mouthed truths about God, but they live denying his attributes. How much of your worry, dear brother and sister, has come your way because you've forgotten that your God is near? How many comforts have you forfeited because you have forgotten truths about your God? Have you said out loud that you believe God is sovereign? 
but deny the doctrine with your anxious thoughts when hard and unwanted circumstances come your way? Those in thoughts imply to your soul that God is not as in control as you say. Have you sung out loud that God is wise, but responded with anger when your prayers are not answered just as you expected? If the angels could see into your heart in those moments, could they not conclude you think you know better than the Lord? Did you encourage your family all week to look to a God of love, but grumble when your plans have come to ruin? Such mumbling shout you're questioning his divine care. I said at the beginning of this sermon that our comforts in this life all depend on what we love. If we do not delight in this God being near as he is in the scriptures, we cannot expect any real or lasting peace, security, or stability in our lives. But brothers and sisters, what a Lord, our, what, what a Lord Jesus Christ is who can guard our hearts and minds. What a Lord that is. How? How? Because he is the fullness of the, he is the fullest surety that God is near. His incarnation proves this truth. He comes down from heaven to dwell with us. He faced off with the devil in the wilderness and at the cross, never giving his heart over to the world to satisfy his desires for a people, but always trusting his Father. He turned from putting his hope even in his disciples who could have so often disappointed them disappointed him if he had made them ultimate. Think of Peter trying to educate his savior on the role of the Messiah. Surely you cannot go to the cross and die. No, instead, he came in his humiliation and rose in his glory knowing full well what stumbling bumbling, stiff-necked people we are. And he experienced all of our heartaches to sympathize with us, and he suffered to give us the offer. They offered every single one of us of rest, those who need it because we're weak and weary from our idolatry. And when we come to him asking if he's willing to make us well, he will joyously say, I am willing be well. This is the God that we need. The God who is with us. Emmanuel. But the second great anchor he gives to us for our soul's joy is prayer. Is prayer. In fact, I think the truest application of believing that the Lord is near, the, the, the thing that we can do that expresses that we believe that's true, and in fact even nourishes that thought that God is near is to pray. One will not pray if one does not even have the slightest faith that God is both willing and able to deliver joy to his saints. Again, Christ proved this. Our Lord was a man dedicated to prayer. He found his joy in his Father and knowing his nearness. And even on the cross, so many people get this wrong, even on the cross, his prayer from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That wasn't a declaration that God had abandoned him. Read the whole psalm. On the cross, struggling, Jesus Christ is praying because of the end of the psalm. He's reassuring his heart that his father is near and loves him and will not abandon him. 
Our catechisms are so helpful in showing how these things go together. And, and, and I want to take just a moment. I'm going to be quick. And maybe just write down the questions. But see how this gets stitched together. Sometimes we read these one questions by themselves and we don't put them together. I want, I want to stitch them together for just a minute. Question 39. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? Now, justification, adoption, and sanctification are things that we receive from Christ. They're things God does to us through our Lord. Now, listen to what he says. The, the, the catechism says, The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, Joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance there unto the end. You see, the benefit of Christ's work is joy in the Holy Spirit. So there is in every believer the seed of joy simply by having the Holy Spirit. This is the truth. If you are adopted, if you are sanctified, if you're, if you're justified, I did it the order of Corinthians instead of the order of, of that actually happens to us, but it, when that happens, then the Holy Spirit is yours and the seed of joy is already there. But how... How does that seed blossom so that there's fruitful joy, abundance of joy? Question 90. What does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? Now, the wrath and curse, go back and read the other questions about sin and misery. That'll tell you why our lives are so miserable. But to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life. Now listen. With the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. If you want to grow in the benefits of redemption, justification, sanctification, adoption, and all those things that flow from it, including joy in the Holy Spirit, there must be a diligent use of means. Baptist question 93. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? Listen. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances. Especially the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Now this is not prayer by yourself in your prayer closet. That's a good thing, praying by yourself. But this is prayer with and for and in the presence of the local congregation. Your daily prayer is needed. Christ commands you to go into your closet and pray. But growth in the joy of the Holy Spirit comes from your growth in justification, adoption, and sanctification. All three of which are corporate. They happen in the body. All three of which rely on the means of grace, which only happen in the body. Do you wonder why then we ask so often, invite you so often to come to the evening prayer service? Because we want you to be a joyous people. Baptist 106. Now here's, here's very interesting. I, I look for the word joy in all of the confession. And I especially in, in, in the catechism. And I especially looked in these ordinary means of grace. You know where you only find joy in the ordinary means of grace? It's in all three of them. It's, it's in all four, four of them. But it only shows up specifically in the catechism in one place. Listen. Question 106, what rule has God given for our direction in prayer? The whole word of God is of use to the direction of us in prayer. But the special rule of that direction is the prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Question 111, what do we pray for in the fourth petition? In the fourth petition, which is give us this day our daily bread. Listen, we pray that of God's free gift, we may receive a competent portion of the good things of this life and enjoy his blessings with them.
how many people are dissatisfied with the Lord because they're not praying with his people? How many of you, how, how often have I forfeited joy in the Lord because we have not come together and prayed? Could it really be that simple, brothers and sisters, that the Lord has called us to pray to him, that he would be our great joy, and that every good thing that comes from his hand we'd acknowledge and enjoy only as a means of enjoying him? It seems so trite and cliche. And you might even say to yourself, I've tried it before. But here's the thing is, the Lord is calling us to cry out to him to be freed from a love of the world and sinful dependency on one another. Is he not inviting us to no longer lean on our own understanding of what we need in favor of trusting him to quiet our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus for him to be our joy? Absolutely. Yes, he is. Now, that's not very titillating, is it? It's not as exciting as what the world offers. Nor does it appear to be as tangible as the person you could squeeze sitting next to you in the row. And it's so far easier to trust in our own, under, our own desires. And yet the prayer in faith that God calls us to, to engage in, that, that, that prayer and faith that calls on God who is willing and able can do far better for us than anything that the world or one another could offer. Now, we have no promise, brothers and sisters, of an easy life, of a carefree life, of having all our desires met. That's true whether or not you believe in Christ or not. Unbelievers have hard lives too. But if we turn to him you know, in prayer, you know what he will do? He will bear us up daily. He will transform our lowly earthly desires into Christ's. Those desires that are far better and far more satisfying. So what do we do? Well, let's start now by calling on the Lord for delight in Him and freedom from every hindrance in Christ. Let us pray.